0: when we return to Wat Bapong for the annual Lumpur Cha Memorial Day events and the retreat leading up to that. It's always a time to recollect the teachings of Lumpur Cha and the practices that have become synonymous with life at the Monastery, Wat and the, what you might call the tradition of Lumpur There There's certain aspects of his teachings which are still very clear today you might say there's still very much a living teaching and practice (coughs) that's endured since his death 24 years ago. The obvious one being the sense of harmony and community between sangha members, monks and novices, nuns, and then the lay community who periodically practice in the monasteries and also support the monasteries regularly. That goes without saying that every year thousands of people attend the Lumpur Memorial Day events. Hundreds and even thousands of monks attend. Everything is organized, funded and maintained by volunteers, both sangha and laity. So the whole thing is an expression of community, harmony. Various qualities also are very noticeable, say the respect, the reverence for, particularly for the elders of the sangha, When you go to Wabupong, you meet other Sangha members and the the senior ones you bow three times to, pay respects to. Even the laity, there's a sense of respect for the older members of the lay community, those who have maybe been supporting the monastery for many, many years and practicing there. That's another factor in the harmony, sense of harmony between people, just this quality of respect, reverence, respect for the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and respect for each other as fellow practitioners of the Dhamma. (coughs) And in a very natural way this binds people together and allows even large numbers of people to practice Dhamma together successfully. You can still go to Wat Papong and sit in a kuti or walk meditation even when there's thousands of people there and be very peaceful and carry on with your practice. We know because we've just done that, it's still possible to meditate when there's many people around. All of this is uh, a tribute to Lumpur Cha's skill in teaching and his sacrifice in establishing the monastery, teaching a sangha and the laity over many years. Obviously, there are other aspects which come to mind when you visit. The teachings you hear, whether in Vabupong, from the teachers who gather and give talks at the event, or also visiting other meditation masters around Thailand, Lumpur Plin and Lumpur Ophat, on this trip, they all have um, certain teachings that they bring up that are familiar. Familiar themes, and probably the most familiar is the teaching of basic, the basic practice of patience and endurance. When you're practicing meditation, whether it's just a temporary thing, just a one-off meditation session, or talking more about the monastic lifestyle as a whole, it's founded on the practice of patience, endurance, or as they say, otton. Often people say, where does this come from? this quality. Ajahn Chah and many of the other teachers, or the Buddha himself, would talk about the five spiritual powers, five indriya, sata or conviction in the teachings and the path of practice and in the Buddha's enlightenment, viriya, persistent effort, or perseverance, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration, or calm, panya, wisdom. Patience isn't in one of those five spiritual powers, or maybe not obviously. So where does patience come from? Well it comes from Satta, the first. If you ask any of the lay people attending Ajahn Chah's memorial retreat, how is it that you can sit for many hours, often just sitting on the floor of the forest, with very little support, physical support, exposed to the elements, the bugs, heat, the cold, listening to Dhamma talks, meditating, and on the last night, meditating all night long, how can they do it? And They'll always say, Otton, oh, patience. Where does the patience come from? It comes from sata. Having a faith, conviction in the, in the teachings, in the Buddha, in the teacher, Lumpur Chah, and then his disciples. Faith in karma, that it's true putting effort into making good karma, training oneself in the path, the Eightfold Path, is worth it, it's valuable. Faith in making merit, in bringing one's views and understanding in line with Dhamma, making merit in all the different ways, through dana, sila, bhavana. This is all where uh, the faith that the people have lead their mind to focus on these things and then bring up the patience that they need to carry out the practice. They're willing to sit with pain because they have faith, confidence and conviction in what they're doing is good, true, right and leading to the end of suffering. Even though they're experiencing some temporary suffering as they practice, they're willing to go through that because they know it's for the end of suffering. So sattha or faith, conviction in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha leads directly to the arising of patience and endurance. It's not a blind sattha, blind faith, it's balanced when we talk about the five spiritual powers, it's balanced by the power of wisdom, panya. We think about where we're placing our faith. It's not blind faith. It's not just uh, blindly enduring through pain or difficulties with no goal, with no purpose. It's certainly not leading on to endurance for any negative reasons. When there's wisdom guiding our faith, it's for the end of suffering that we're practicing. We know that. We remind ourselves of that. And that's where we summon up the energy and the endurance to overcome the obstacles that we face in in the practice So faith is balanced by wisdom, guided by wisdom. And as we practice more, then our spiritual power of satire or faith becomes internalized. And whereas in the beginning it's generated by and supported by external factors, such as listening to the Dhamma, meeting teachers, hearing the Dhamma, practicing with fellow practitioners or kalyana Mita Later on, it's internalized, and that's where your wisdom really arises, where you see the benefits of your practice over time. And you have enough confidence in what you're doing that even though you know you're not yet fully enlightened, you can see that you're going in the right direction. And you might have seen some particular insights or peace that's arisen from your own experience that means your your faith is no longer just dependent on the externals it's now based on your own personal experience and you can build on that. (coughs) Many of those practitioners in Bapong, they understand that. Certainly the Sangha have been practicing for many years. But even the laity, they know their faith is in the right place and they've had some experience, some peace, some joy. So they're willing to keep on practicing. So they come back year after year and the numbers increase and people's effort often increases. And it's expressed both in their Efforts in meditation, sitting, walking, listening to Dhamma, but also in dana and service. So people provide food, people provide support in many different ways. That's the natural expression of their faith, but also their confidence based on their own experience that the practice does work. And it's a practice, a pathway that will lead to the end of suffering. The event's also a good opportunity to review and remind ourselves of different teachings that Ajahn Chah gave during his life, and that many of us have carried on by remembering them, reflecting on them, again, internalizing some of these teachings. So, not only You hear talks praising the practice of patience and endurance, bringing it up as a quality, but then also encouraging us to contemplate, reflect on the Dhamma, reflect on the, the way it is, the way things are, to break through some of our delusions, misunderstandings, misperceptions, that we've carried on with us. And Lumpo always reminded us that suffering comes from ignorance, avicha, and lack of knowledge. And that's not just lack of theoretical knowledge, but lack of direct experience of the truth. So lack of clarity, lack of mindfulness, lack of wisdom or insight is where suffering comes from. There's one time, one of the, what they call the privy councillors, the Ongamondris, the inner circle of very high civil servants and public figures who advised the Thai king, one of them was very close to Ajahn Chah, came and asked him a question. He said, he thought that the mind of an anagami must be very pure as they've already let go of their attachment to the physical body, the delusion of self on that level, that taking the body as self, the mind has broken through that or transcended that. No more lust, no more anger. Gen Cha pointed out, but an anagami is still not an arahant, so there must be something that the Anag- anagami hasn't yet penetrated with their insight. What is that? It's avijja, ignorance, lack of full knowledge or complete knowledge, lack of complete penetration of the three characteristics of an dukkha, Anatta. And he said it manifests as conceit, mana, the subtle self, sense of self, much of his teachings in the flavor of the teachings of Wat are uh, directing us to see the sense of self and see through it or transcend it whether it's the most basic teachings or the most profound and subtle teachings of say a practitioner who maybe has attained anigami igami parla and is gone practicing for arahant The subtle sense of self is what's there and Lumpu Chao is always pointing to that and the process by which this sense of self emerges and forms around this body and this mind, the five candas, form, feeling, perceptions, thought formations, sense consciousness. This body and mind is where we practice this is where we're directing our mind to contemplate, to look, to learn, or as Ajahn Cha used to say, to witness the truth. So in a very detached, unbiased way, just witnessing the way things are, and witnessing how this sense of self forms. As when he's talking to the Privy Council he talked about how you know this subtle sense of self Even for an anagami, Pugala, somebody's already refined their mind to that level, their insight is so profound, they still have this subtle sense of self, me and you, us and them. Only the Arahant has completely eradicated that from the mind. And he talked, on that occasion, he talked about one of his famous similes about the, the monk's bowl, Like in the Vinaya, we have different categories of bowls. We have large, medium, and small arms bowls. But even each category is divided into three. So you have a large, large, medium, large, small, large, large, medium, 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 small, medium, and a small, small, a medium, small, and a large, small bowl. So nine categories. would compare the sense of self is like that you know every level of our practice whether we're a completely unenlightened individual who's never heard the Dhamma and just beginning our practice always somebody if we practice for a while let go of some things but other things we haven't let go of or somebody very refined level as an anagami you know, there's always this possibility of a sense of self forming around our experience even the good we do the faith we have can have a sense of self in my faith my belief in the Buddha it's right it's correct or Samadhi my experience of Samadhi the peaceful mind it's mine it's my attainment my accomplishment or insight I am wise I have insight into the impermanent nature of the five kendas. I am a sotapanna. I am an anagami whether the mind is on a coarse level or a very refined level it's large it's medium it's small as it were there's always this chance of the sense of self subtly weaving itself into our experience and taking over even the anagami hasn't uprooted that, hasn't completely seen it. That's why he's still an Anagami, not an Arahant. Most of us can probably remember when we hadn't yet practiced the Dhamma yet, when we first began reading or listening to Buddhist teachings and maybe learned to meditate and you reflect back after you've learned to meditate for a little while and you realize before you'd come in in contact with the Buddhist teachings operating from a sense of, massive sense of self or ego forming over every kind of experience we have the ups and the downs of life there's always a sense of, very strong sense of me mine, myself with no clarity yet no way of understanding or looking beyond that it's what Ajahn Chah used to call the Samuti Satya the appearance of things the apparent reality or we say conventional reality that human beings or unenlightened human beings are constantly bound up with caught up in and deluded by when we begin practice that's very strong And everything we identify with as self. So even just our name. We have a name probably given to us by our parents. We like our name or we don't like it. Anyone calls us our name, whatever it is, Paul, John, David, whatever, we respond to it. Even our name, we respond to, we may have an opinion about it. Someone comes up to us and says, they don't like our name, probably get angry straight away, feel upset. I remember one man came here once, the name his parents gave him he didn't like, so he just changed his own name, picked a name that he preferred. So even just our name is where the apparent reality starts, you know, the reality of concepts, labels, thinking mind when we're born we're given a name so they repeat repeat our name whether it's a nickname or the full name we have our gender so we have many kinds of concepts and labels reinforcing our, our gender you're a boy you wear certain kinds of clothes play with certain kinds of toys you're a girl you wear different kinds of clothes different toys and they talk to you differently if you're a boy, you're considered handsome, good looking. If you're a girl, you're considered beautiful. On and on it goes. And we gradually build up our experience of the world through this apparent reality, or the conventional reality of labels, names, concepts, ideas. And Jen Cha was always pointing through that, to, to see through that says so when you can see through the conventional reality, the appearance of things, then you've got a chance to transcend it and experience vimuti, or liberation of mind, transcendence of mind, which comes through insight. So in the way he taught, he was always trying to find ways to show the ultimate reality or the insight that lay behind the apparent reality behind the names the labels, the concepts that we identify with whether on the very coarse level you know, when you come into the monastery and begin practising, it always seems very coarse and difficult our emotions are very strong sometimes our doubts are strong the thinking mind seems very important and we take every thought seriously and believe it and uh, argue over it. We have lots of Dhamma arguments when we enter the monastery, because we think we, maybe we have a lot of faith, and we've learned the Dhamma, and then we hear someone else say something different, so we argue with them. In the beginning, everything seems quite coarse. It's all this sense of self, and the appearance, the apparent reality is tricking us deceiving us, confusing us. Even when we turn to the practice of Dhamma, it can do that. But the more you practice, then the more Ajahn Chah would encourage us to witness what's going on, look and witness it, the way the mind operates, the way the mind creates a sense of self by building up this apparently solid sense of me, mind, myself in our experience of this body and mind. In the world. And you're starting to witness it by looking more closely, and you're seeing and noticing the truth mm, things are impermanent. This apparent reality is a constant course of dukkha. The more we attach to it, cling on to it, and the more suffering we have. And it fools us, makes us think that things that are impermanent are permanent, things that are suffering are going to be a source of happiness and lasting happiness. And they give us, it gives us this sense of self. The apparent reality is that there is a me, my, myself, this body is mine, my thoughts are mine, my feelings are mine, and we identify with everything very strongly. So Ajahn Chah was, over and over again, finding different ways, simple or more profound, to point out to people in their experience, to help them to see through this, see through the apparent reality to the deeper underlying truths, through the practice, and not just developing the mindfulness and the samadhi through sitting and walking, but just every aspect of daily life. So when you go to Wat Bupong, you hear this in talks, anecdotes, recollections and so on. Ajahn Chah would point out that this sense of self is constantly deluding us, constantly coming up in our experience and causing us suffering. It comes from ignorance which conditions desire or craving, craving based on all our Senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and the internal mind itself remembering things, experiencing ideas, concepts. Desire arises all the time. When there's no mindfulness, we get called into craving, liking, disliking, attraction and aversion, and building up a sense of self-identity if you think about it, you know, this sense of self is built up over a long period of time, over habitual craving. So, your views, your opinions on things are based on you know, what you've liked before becomes something that is good, what is right for me, it's good, it's what I want, I like. You identify with that. What is unpleasant, painful, bad experiences unpleasant things we don't like we don't want so these the craving leads to a hardening in the mind it becomes what we call upadana clinging or attachment so particularly through our sense contact sensual experience we know what we like we know what we don't like we remember that and that becomes a fixed view on ourselves the world around us, we're constantly applying these views and opinions whether in very coarse things, just like sort of material things or material comfort what we like to eat and use and have or very subtle things like ideas, concepts still it's the same process and Numbachar used to say even views and opinions that we have, obviously, as we learn the Dhamma, we're learning to have views on the Dhamma. It's all right to have views and opinions, and we can't avoid that, because that's the way our minds work. In views and opinions form, but it's the clinging onto them, firmly attaching to views and opinions, is where suffering arises. So there's a a phrase you hear often, people quote Ajahn Chah, they say, "Yut de Mahe Man. Man means firmly, firmly attached. Yut means to cling or hold on to. Mahe Man means cling but not too firmly. Hold on but not too tightly. So as views form in your mind about everything, about your life, about material things about concepts, about the Dhamma, good and bad. You can't stop that happening, but then don't hold on too tightly, because as you tighten your grip around those views, then you're conditioning the arising of more ignorance, more craving, more attachment, and the whole process is reinforcing itself. Gen Chah always used to say, "Well, keep bringing up mindfulness and seeing this process, Witness it how, it, how views form, and then how we cling onto them tightly, and the sense of self identity occurs. It's what we call bhava experience of becoming. Upadana conditions becoming. So we have a view, we cling tightly, and then we identify with that. So our sense of self identity forms, so we become that, that way. And it's like a pathway. Physically, you might go into it and research, and do some medical, some scientific research. You might say, well, the brain, the plasticity of the brain means that you keep thinking in a certain way, and keep responding and with emotions and liking and disliking in a certain way. Well, you're actually carving out pathways very very subtle pathways in your brain, actually molding your brain in a certain way. That's what the modern research shows. Or you might just do it through mindfulness and observation and in, in, in insight, investigation. You're seeing habitual ways of thinking, responding to sense stimulus, liking, disliking, identifying with concepts and views. Well, it becomes hardened, in your psyche, in your mind and then it becomes attachment and you gradually identify more and more so this sense of self is formed. And you see it begins, when we begin practice, is a very coarse sense of self. So we get very high and then when things go badly we get very low. So One of the first experiences living in a monastery is so an Anagarika or a novice or a young monk lots of highs and lows. When the faith comes up, we're inspired and we try practicing or for a period of time we feel very inspired. We can maybe put effort forth, going against the grain, not sleep so much, do more sitting and walking, not bothered by many things. Everything seems right. And Jen Cha used to say, when those periods come where you're very inspired and the faith is strong, you're energized, he says, Thai people would tend to interpret it as that the devas must be helping them. And the devas are right there, backing you. Everything you do seems to go well. You think correctly, things come your way, things go well, not too many problems. So even the devas are right behind you. But It's a delusion. It's the sense of dana upadana becoming forms around that experience. It's not that you're doing wrong, you're still practicing and practicing properly and well, but perhaps our insight is not yet following on closely enough. The the internal witness is not clear enough. So we get very attached to that high. And then what happens is we can't sustain it. Things start to unravel a bit. Maybe we become tired or we get some illness. Maybe we meet some obstacles, maybe have some difficulty with another person or some aspect of our daily life. Maybe we start to doubt, doubt the teacher, doubt the place. It all starts to unravel and the mind kind of slips downhill and we end up in a kind of a rut, feeling down, disheartened, discouraged, maybe even want to disrobe. Most people go through this, the ups and downs. When we're down, it seems like everything is against us. The devas are against us. The teachers are against us, the world is against us, life is against us. Again, it's this process of avijja, pacheya, Danha, Pachya upadana, bhava. You know, when you're down, you are identifying with, with the negatives, any painful experience, unpleasant experience, you identify with that and it seems to justify your thinking at that time. So it's like, oh yeah, everything's against me, I've got no barami, no merit, I can't do this. Maybe we get bored, maybe we get frustrated and just want to leave. When we're up, we identify with that. Sense of self is up. When we're down, the sense of self is down. But the whole purpose of the practice, as Ajahn Chah used to say, it's about keep going going continue the practice through the ups and downs if you keep going through the ups and downs then you start to bring up the qualities of mindfulness circumspection to guide your faith your effort your wisdom so that you're no longer getting caught into the highs or the lows but it starts to bring up an evenness of mind through the middle of all these ups and downs And this is the effect of mindfulness. As Ajahn Chah used to say, you practice mindfulness in all postures, standing, walking, sitting, lying down. Keep returning to the present moment, to the practice of mindfulness. And you get this evenness of mind coming. You start to get an internal refuge through the ups and downs of life. Something that's a little bit more reliable than just moods, feelings, opinions and views. Something that sees through the apparent reality, the sense of self-identity that normally forms around our experience. Steing through that, so that, the mind starts to become closer to the Dhamma. As it becomes closer to the Dhamma, you can still listen to the teachings, reflect on them and learn new teachings and have more reflections, but you're no longer just reliant on external sources of inspiration. You also start to get internal sources of inspiration through your own experience. Mindfulness becomes more established. You become more skilled in how to keep it and maintain it through different physical and mental experiences. So another recollection of Ajahn Chah is always this phrase, Pati Rui Rui means like keep practicing, keep doing it. Because as you keep doing it, you learn, learn more. Not just learn from the external sources, from the books and talks, but you actually learn through your experience to the point where you can look back and see the way things are, and say, hmm, that was just a mood. You have a very high period where you're very enthusiastic and inspired, but you see, it was just a mood, a feeling. You have a very low period where you're feeling down. As you reflect back now with mindfulness and insight, you realise, hmm, it's just another mood, another impermanent passing mood, a phase. Little by little you learn not to give importance to the ups and downs, to the pleasant, the unpleasant. Your focus becomes the, the maintenance of mindfulness, or if mindfulness is lost, it's bringing up mindfulness again becomes your main purpose of your practice. Little by little you give less importance to all the different moods and the views and the opinions, the ups and downs. The knowledge, even the sense of self that might form around some of the attainments or the the good parts of the practice, the dhana we do, the sila we keep, the samadhi we experience, the insight we experience, the sense of self might form but quickly we see through it as we establish more mindfulness. We don't give too much importance even to the attainments and the successes of our practice. It's just that much. Good meditation was just a good meditation. A peaceful state of mind was, you know, it's just a peaceful state of mind. Insight, it's just insight. Because we also know these things are impermanent. They're not sure. In Ajahn Chah I always used to say whatever, wherever there's impermanence, there's the Buddha. You know, the internal Buddha. The wisdom of the Buddha is right there where you see impermanence. So if it's the external world, well it's pretty obvious most of us know that now. Things don't last, buildings don't last, the weather doesn't last, the comings and goings of people and the changing nature of society, nothing lasts, it's impermanent. But on a more deeper level we are also seeing the impermanence of your own physical and mental experiences the changing body, changing mental states, the moods, the thoughts, they don't last. As you practice more and you reflect on these teachings Lumpur Cha gave, you see how true they are, it's all impermanent. Even when an attainment seems to come up, you have some samadhi, you have some insight, it's not sure. So as Anshad used to say, you, you meet someone, they claim they're a sodapana, or you think they're a sodapanna but it's not sure. Or you have your own experience, you think, hmm, I must have entered the stream by now, but it's not sure. Same with a sakatagami or anagami, or even an arahant. He said even the arahant is even more not sure, because there's no delusion left in the mind. The arahant is, living with the not-sureness of things, the impermanent nature of things is so clear, constantly breaks through the apparent reality, the conventional reality. There's no sense of self, because any sense of self that arises is immediately not sure. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm attained, I'm not attained, I have Bharami, I don't have Bharami, I have some merit, I don't have merit, I'm good, I'm bad, it's not sure. And the arahant of all people has that insight completely established. So the arahant and the Buddha in that sense are on the same level. One who's practiced to that level, they're just completely clear that everything is not sure. It's an nature. it's impermanent. Or another way he said it's like the spillway of a dam. Like in Australia, this dry country, everyone builds dams to collect water. You always have a spillway. When the dam gets full in the rainy season, the water can flow over the spillway so it doesn't break the front of the dam, it doesn't burst the dam. As long as you've got a spillway, your dam can function and keep storing water for you but never breaks. And the spillway of the, the Arya Pugolas is the impermanent, reflection on impermanence. As long as you have that reflection, you can't go far wrong. Your mind is in line with Dhamma. You have right view and a mind that's in line with Dhamma when you see impermanence. If your mindfulness is clear and solid and strong, then you can see impermanence regularly. Constantly, and you can penetrate through the apparent reality of this body and the mind and this sense of self that's always forming. And you know, oh, not sure. It's impermanent. So this is where Ajahn Chah said transcendence arises. You get vimutti out of samuti. Samuti is the apparent reality. Vimutti is the ultimate reality or the transcendence. The liberation of mind so it's valuable to have these occasions where we either sometimes we do it here we have a Ajahn Chah Memorial Day or a retreat or we go to Thailand good occasion to remember his teachings how he taught how he practiced and keep refreshing our understanding and our efforts in the practice and also we get support where we see other people practicing all over the world nowadays these teachings are read, listened to, practiced and that's our good, good fortune, a good opportunity that we can see ourselves and others practicing and getting benefit from the practice So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight and we can do some uh, Purita chanting.